from Relay FM. This is Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode 24, recorded August 9th, 2022. I am your master of ceremonies, Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by our director of strategy, Julia Alexander. Hi, Julia. Hey, Jason. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Uh, you know what? Can't complain. Well, I could complain about the weather, but I choose not to. We That's could complain, but we choose not to. That's I love right. It. Um, you know, we haven't talked for a month, but we did do an episode, the episode uh, with the letters uh, two weeks ago. So it's good uh, that we're back. Uh, a lot of people saying, oh, my God, where is downstream? <laughs> we need to talk about what the thing that everybody is talking about, which is Warner Brothers Discovery. And we will. That's what this episode is going to be about, because there's so much and it's so weird. And, and, and what I've also noticed is I know who isn't listening to downstream because I've saw a bunch of people jumping to all these conclusions and I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. It's more complicated than that. It may still be as bad as you think, but differently. So, uh, we'll get there, but I have one piece of follow-up first, which is we talked, um, about, uh, we had a letter writer who was talking about Paramount Plus on Apple channels and how they didn't get access to live stuff and what that was an issue. And we heard from uh, listener Andy and also listener Todd and also listener James and also listener Brett about this. The answer is you can actually still use the Paramount Plus native app for the live stuff since it's not in the Apple interface. Um, you just have to go to a special website uh, or a special web page where you register that you bought inside Apple with Paramount Plus, and it's ParamountPlus.com slash Apple. And that's where you do it. So easy. They make it so easy. Mm-hmm. Well, you know? I mean, at least there's a solution there. I, I just assumed that there wasn't. That's <laughs> true. Like, nope, too bad. Too bad the optimism. You. This is the optimism podcast. That's what I'm calling it. Okay. The, so great. We're going to go with it. Great. Um, all right. So that's that's our follow-up. Um, but let's let's move on to the main topic of uh, of choice, which is Warner Brothers Discovery, uh, and uh, and 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 Zaslav uh, doing his zazzing that he does. I guess like we've talked about this a lot. Warner Brothers Discovery came out of AT and T spinning out its ownership of Warner Brothers with uh, merging it with Discovery and the CEO of Discovery, David Zaslav, uh, you know, helped engineer the deal. They took on a lot of debt. AT&T spun a lot of debt into the into the company. Zaz comes in saying he's going to he's going to cut costs and save money. Um, there's the awkward period where he's not in charge, where they institute Jason Kalar, the CEO, basically institutes his one strategy. And then Zaz takes over and basically says, well, that's not my strategy and begins sort of undoing everything that came before this kind of reached ahead last week where Warner Brothers Discovery canceled some films that were already mostly made and said you'll never see them again because they apparently decided it was actually more financially beneficial to them to write them off for tax reasons than to continue working on them and releasing them for whatever benefit that would have gotten. There are also stories about layoffs and budget cuts. Lots of stories out there about that. They they did have their corporate uh, release, their corporate earnings, and uh, there were a bunch of slides that people made fun of for good reason because they were corporate slides that were dumb. Um and they also said something of note, which is what we always suspected, which is that ultimately HBO Max and, Dis and uh, Discovery Plus will be merged into a single streaming service starting in the U.S. next year. So that was the that's the shorthand of it. Did I miss anything there? No, I think you got pretty much everything. That's that's where we are. So, you know, 
I, I don't know. I, I, I've got some quotes here that from various reports about this. I, I did enjoy the one that says you should know that on multiple writer text chains, people are calling him Zaslav the Butcher. I'm like, well, ouch. Um, but am I wrong? Like, okay, I'm not going to defend Zaslav because I think I have some very... I have some questions about it, but like, I feel like one of the things that's going on here in terms of how this is being reported is that there's really two ways of looking at this. And one of this is from the perspective of being a consumer of content or a creator of content, where you look at this with abject horror, which is like, well, wait, they made a whole Batgirl movie and then they just killed it. Um, like I have a friend who lives in Glasgow and he's like, they closed the streets. I, I talked to JK Simmons and that was for nothing. And there's a whole movie with Michael Keaton reprising his role as Batman and no one will ever see it, even though it was mostly done, not completely done, but mostly done because it was better as a tax write-off. Like I get it. But the other perspective is from the money side, which is there's a lot of debt. And Zaslav said he was going to cut things. And he looks at he looks at Warner Brothers that he inherited as part of this deal and says they are spending too much money. They are losing too much money on HBO Max. I, I have to make cuts and Wall Street will support me in this because if I don't do this, the stock's going to going to tank and all my money is in the stock and I made this deal. And, and so am I wrong in saying that like part of the weirdness of how we see this reported and how people react to it is there's kind of these two different ways of looking at it, which is as a creator or a consumer versus as a business person looking at the business decisions here. No, you're 100% right. And this comes up often in Hollywood, right? I mean, there is a very specific reason why lines like it's not called show whatever, it's called show business, baby. Like there's a reason that that is a, a very, you know, integral part of the culture. Hollywood is a business. It is it, and a company like Warner Brothers Discovery is a publicly traded company. It is it has one specific duty. It has a fiduciary a fiduciary duty to its shareholders. And when you're looking at what's happening, like if we if we just examine the fact that when AT&T acquired Time Warner, the 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 stock of uh, I believe it was Time Warner when AT&T acquired it was sitting at $106. And if you look at where um I'm going to call them WBD just because it's so much easier than saying yeah. Warner Brothers Discovery. If we look at WBD stock today, it's like above $14, but like $15. Yeah. It's a huge drop in, in the stock in the course of six in the course of six years. And what we have to look at from this perspective is David Zaslav is someone who is a cable giant. He's come in. He's built really successful cable channels. He's built one of the most successful cable companies in the history of, of, of television. And he's coming in and he's saying, listen, there's a lot of bloat on the Warner side. There's a lot of bloat on the various Warner properties that we think we don't necessarily need, whether that's redundancies that we can get rid of, whether that's projects that we think we can write down for tax reasons or that we think that we can write off because the amortization on carrying those products is not necessarily where it needs to be or whatever whatever the reason it might be. Zaslav comes in and says, we need to get to a point where we're not projecting a $2 billion miss in EBITDA because that's not what our, our shareholders need. So that's one side of it. But he's coming from off of the Jason Klar area where Jason Klar, you know, I, I said this, I think, on on, on Twitter, like if, if if Jason, if David Zaslav is one of the most uh, is a realist in terms of how he acts as a CEO, in terms of how he approaches spending, how he approaches cost initiatives and cost savings, then Jason Klar is his futurist who truly believe that HBO Max is this crown jewel of the company. It's like it's, it's the biggest thing that the company is going to do. They're going to meet audiences across different platforms because they think that they need to to get ahead of, of people kind of dropping from cable. They want to be in a great place for when that transition really happens, that they're already one of the front runners. 
You know, Jason Klar, for all this flack he got from the, the, the agencies and the film community for bringing a lot of those movies to day and date on HBO Max in 2021, he was kind of this guy who operated under the same mentality, I would argue, a lot of HBO did, which was this idea of this might not work, but let's try it. Like, we think there's something that could be done here, and so we're going to do it. So you get Batgirl, which is a 70 to $80 million movie that's going to need some reshoots. That's going to need some work. So let's say it becomes a $100 million movie that is never going to see a theatrical release at a time when theatrical health is improving, is only going to go to streaming at a time when subscriber growth is slowing down a little bit in the United States for those platforms. Um, when that title is not necessarily going to bring in a new group of subscribers, it's going to appeal to DC fans who are already on that service. So that's where you have the Zaslav move come in. And Zaslav says, we don't think we're going to make much money off this in terms of subscriber growth. We're not going to bring it to theaters because we don't think it's necessarily good enough to go to theaters. We think it'll be a flop there. So instead, we're going to take this opportunistic write down. Those are the two different styles that you see coming to play here. And I think what we're seeing reflected in the creative community is this idea of when Zaslav came in originally and was buying this, you know, he took meetings with all talent. He took meetings with the agents and he said, I want to make sure that we're going to theater, that we're prioritizing theatrical. I want to make sure that we're prioritizing, that we're still prioritizing linear to an extent. And then I also want to prioritize HBO Max's growth and, and doing it this way. And so the creative community was like, this is great. We're going to go back to theaters and we're going to get all our projects made. But on the other side of that equation, what you get is him saying, well, we're not going to make as many projects necessarily. We're going to be very specific with how we do them. We're going to be much more reliant on data than our previous than the previous management. And we have a very specific way of going about these films. We're not just relying on relationships. We're, we're going to work on those relationships while relying on the data. And so the critic community who's kind of in this flux, of like, well, which one was better? And what does this mean for us? And at the <laughs> center of this conversation, I think, in my opinion, is the HBO equation, which is HBO Small network comparably to a, to a lot of others, compared to an ABC, compared to an NBC. It's a small niche kind of boutique network that makes a lot of great television. And doesn't necessarily uh, uh, compete, didn't, didn't necessarily compete well with the subscribers, you know, for the last 20 years. HBO built those talent relationships on the backbone of basically like, hey, sometimes we have to spend lavishly. Look at the Pacific, right? You look at, you like, you look at shows like that. Sometimes we have to spend lavishly in order to retain that talent, in order to beat out other co competition offers um, to keep that talent. And HBO, you know, who spends a million dollars for a, a, a premiere party or whatever it might be. Now they have this boss who's like, well, why do we necessarily need to spend that? And I think this is where you'll see the biggest struggle. It's which is Casey Bloys, who runs HBO and HBO Max, is a unicorn, which is what David Zaslav called him. And it's true. He is the most sought after creative executive on the television front. He's the most protective executive on the television front for a very good reason. You can look at the last year of HBO and HBO Max Originals to kind of prove that. And he's going to say, we do things a very specific way at HBO. We have been protected amongst, you know, four different corporate daddies in the last 25 years. We have been protected and insulated because we do what we do best. And that includes spending. And I think you have Zaslav who's like, sure, but also we need to bring that spending down. And so that type of culture clash is either going to come down to really great compromises that's beautiful, or we'll see this play out in, in news reports that it becomes a bit more of a struggle. I think um, the Casey Bloys thing is really interesting. I, by the way, I want to mention because you mentioned EBITDA. This is the North Star for Zaslav. Yeah. If, if you don't, if you're not a business person, it's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. It's basically a metric that is a a, a simple-ish way to say how are we doing. That com it comes down to basically like what are our earnings? And it's that's the health what he's, of a company. Yeah, and that's what he's trying to get up. He's he's looking at that as his as his guidepost here. So from a basically a money perspective is how Zaslav is trying to manage the company. Now you mentioned. Bloys. 
I think it's interesting that I I feel like all this noise is going around outside of the part of Warner Brothers Discovery that is Casey Bloys. Like, you know, and and I'm starting to wonder if maybe HBO proper is the place that is going to be the least touched by what Mm -hmm. he's doing. Um, If you know, remember the stories when when. Kalar came in and you know all of that there was this question of like well we're going to do HBO Max and we're going to launch it on the back of HBO and we're going to make a new thing that's also HBO but is bigger and there's more stuff and all that and 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 HBO Max Originals happened but there was some real grumbling at HBO that like well but this isn't HBO I look at this now and I'm wondering if that's one of the things that's happening here is it's being unwound a little bit but 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 that HBO might be HBO proper and Casey Bloys's fiefdom might be okay with it because they are such a crown jewel that I think maybe they're, if not untouchable, that they're going to be less affected by this than the stuff you see on the periphery, like a Max original from DC or the animated, the Scooby-Doo sequel that got killed as well, along with that girl. Um, It just, it strikes me that, that, um, Zaslav will go out of his way to say that Casey Bloys is the best, right? Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that's that's the strategy is is that we're going to cut all of this extra stuff, the scaffolding that we built around HBO to launch HBO Max, but um, we're going to lay off HBO proper because we we know that that's the best original content generation thing. And also Zaslav is a guy who comes from cable, as you said, and he comes from reality programming, and like he doesn't know. He he doesn't know this stuff, and and he's got his unicorn, Casey Bloys. So maybe you just let Casey Bloys do his thing and cut everything around him. Right, and I hundred percent agree. In terms of the actual HBO staffing, in terms of the HBO programming, and the decisions that Casey Bloys and his team make, they are the most protected at that company by far. And I think actually something that you brought up towards the end of, of what you were saying, um, Jason. Is, is something I kind of want to touch upon because this became a whole viral thing when there was one slide in the presentation that said HBO Max skews male, Discovery Plus skews female. And everyone oh, yeah. was absolutely outraged by this. And it was a little bit um, confusing to me because a lot of people who are outraged by it work in media. And if you work at a media company, you can ask your advertising departments for those exact slides that they have that tell you what your website skews toward in terms of income bracket in terms of gender, in terms of generational uh, demographic, they have those slides. Zaslav did not come out and say, we are designing HBO Max to skew, to be for men and we are designing Discovery Plus to be for women. They're saying our programming tends to skew male on the HBO and HBO Max side. And when it, especially with HBO, it skews heavily male. And I can tell you that. Like I can tell you for a fact it skews heavily male. Part of the reason they brought in Euphoria was because they needed a show that was uh, um, uh, appealing to younger women. You and I I have talked a lot about how a lot of the HBO programming in the Max Originals has been designed to broaden the audience and make it more female. And this and so this is and this is the discovery thing. right? So if you're if what that slide said, and this is where I think it's a really important part of the equation. What that slide is saying is we don't know how to do what Casey does. That's what they do. And the Warner Brothers team, like they can figure that out. What we do really well is the reality side that also appeals to a different audience. If you're trying to build a four quadrant service, so that's men, women, um, above 25, below 25, you need high acquisition programming that tends to be expensive, like a House of the Dragon, whatever, uh, like if you were going to use Batgirl, like a Batgirl. Um, And you also need programming that is relatively cheap to make that tends to be unscripted and are huge retention drivers. It is what people put on. We've talked about this on the podcast. After they're done with House of the Dragon, they go and watch 90 Day Fiance. Now, I'm not saying that putting 
everything from Discovery Plus or HBO Max onto one page is going to work. They need to feel curated. It needs to feel not bloated. The idea of having this additional offering is to make it feel like that. It is made. To, it is designed to be an additional offering that increases the perceived value of that subscription. It is not made to seem like what effectively Netflix has become. You know, I, I was tweeting about this yesterday, where the issue with the Netflix uh, algorithm to an extent is that because it operates within a closed garden, which means it, Netflix doesn't know what viewers are watching outside of Netflix. And because Netflix is losing its licensed content, that's going back to those competitors and having to rely on recommending an influx of originals, the algorithm isn't necessarily getting things as, as good as it used to. You know, this idea of like what people are really interested in starts to dwindle. And so you get to this point where you open up Netflix and it feels bloated. It feels like there are stuff that they're recommending that maybe feels like something you'd be into, but not really. And so you kind of look around for a while and then you end up being bored and you don't watch anything or you just return to watching the show that you have been watching over and over again on Netflix, whatever it might be. For me, it's New Girl. So if you're HBO Max, you don't want to be in a situation where somebody's opening up HBO Max and all of a sudden they're being served a bunch of whether it's CNN content, whether it's TLC content, whether it's Food Network content, if they really only want HBO uh, originals. But I would argue the vast majority of people who watch HBO programming also either watch themselves or have someone in their household who will watch 90 Day Fiance or or uh, an investigation discovery show or House Hunters, which I watch like every Sunday religiously. You know, there's this idea of like, we're going to do this. I think the really interesting question, I want to get your thoughts on this, Jason, about Warner Brothers Discovery for me is strategically what... You know, does it work? This idea of, okay, we're going to go about it this way as opposed to what Killar did. And I want to say just really quickly that I don't think we can judge any of them on whether something has worked or will work because Killar had two years to do something that's barely enough time to get something off the ground. And WBD is just coming in, so they haven't had time to prove anything. But I think we have enough going off their earnings, going off what they've said, what Zaslav has said in the press otherwise, what he's made comments about. To kind of see, is this something that we think in in our gut makes sense for what HBO Max is about to become? Jason, what do you think? Like, do you think that it's a, it, what, what Zaslav wants to do is the right move? Do you think it's too early to tell or do you think it feels like an inherently wrong move? Yeah, I, um, I'll start by saying I think Jason Kalar, um, he ruffled a lot of feathers and all that. He did exactly what he was charged to do, right? Which is launch HBO Max. And I think it's funny to have David Zaslav come in and be like, uh, uh, look at all the money they're spending and losing. It's terrible. And it's like, well, yeah, but that was the strategy. The strategy was spend a lot of money to launch a service so that they could get eyeballs because that was the game two years ago was, oh, my God, Disney got there first. How do we catch up? And you know what? They kind of did. They did a really good job of that. And I get that that might not have been sustainable and that even if Kalar had stayed in charge, he would have been like, okay, we can't keep doing this. We have to change gears. Now that we've done this initial thing, we're going to have to cut back and we're going to have to, you know, get more within our budget. Um, in terms of, uh, of Zaslav coming in, like you mentioned bloat earlier. And I also wanted to mention there's this, uh, Matt, Matt Bellany at Puck, uh, pointed out this, uh, he had this phrase that was like discovery people used to the razor thin staffing of reality TV continue to be surprised by the level of bloat on the Warner side. It's like, I get it. I personally have worked in an organization that was, uh, razor thin in its staffing that got merged with another organization that wasn't. And I know that feeling of, oh, my God, how do they have so many people to do this? And you sort of get offended by it, right? Because you're like, we may do with less. 
Um, and, and then over time, you also have to realize, yeah, but first off, making do with, with less is not necessarily leading to a good product. It's just you're, you're making do. You're cut to the bone. And two, what HBO does, what Warner does is not exactly the same as Discovery. And I, and I feel like they're going through the cycle that I went through as a professional media person of uh, new management comes in and you got to give them like a year to realize why that thing was the way it was. Mm-hmm. And if they cut it, they, they may realize they need it back or if they said, well, we won't cut it now, uh, but I'll cut it in a year. And then a year later, they're like, oh, I understand why that's there. And so I think I feel like that cycle is coming through there where I don't want to portray Zaslav and the Discovery people as like just getting out the chainsaws. I'm sure there is bloat. I'm sure there is stuff that that is super inefficient at Warner. But I think also there's that tendency to... Um, not understand it and think that it doesn't make sense, but it actually does make sense once you spend some time with it and that's going to go on. Um, but your larger point is, do these things fit? I think that's why the criticism of that slide was so funny because I, I think the only point he was trying to make is, look, our businesses are complementary, right? <laughs> like we could put them together and we got a more of a four quadrant. You know, d- we, we bring these two things together. It appeals to more people in general. Jason, are you saying that Twitter acted irrationally? Mm. Wow. Well, about that other slide where there's like the, the arrow <laughs> that goes into the rectangle that is streaming. They did not. That was the one of the most ridiculous slides I've ever seen trying to explain the business model of streaming, which is it's an arrow that goes into a square. Like, okay. Um, if you've ever worked at a movies and TV. firm, if if you've ever worked at a consultancy firm or in the mm. corporation, you know that people love arrows. On oh, man. Well, again, Wall Street is the is the uh, goal there, right? Like yeah. they're, they're trying to explain this to Wall Street people who are like, oh, yes, the arrow goes in the square. Yes, well, I like I, this PowerPoint. I think, I think that's actually a really good point, Jason, is like I think a lot of people in terms of the actual earnings presentation, a lot of people tuned into this and treated it in many ways like a Disney investor day or, or, or a WBD investor day where there's a lot more to say about like the actual content. When right. to your exact point, this is an earnings presentation it happens every mm-hmm. three months and it's very specific like, hey, we are trying to appeal – to analysts on at at banks and analysts and firms and, and don't sell our stock don't retail, don't downgrade our stock please, exactly they like please don't right. downgrade us like we are that, we're doing exactly and so that, i think people came in and they're like what is this presentation and you know I, I i was saying on twitter i was like i love that everyone's really gonna learn what amortization means today like like it's just those things where <laughs> there's a specific audience and half the people who tuned in weren't that audience no. but i mean it's always funny when that happens and, and you get all the people who are on edge who are the fans or yeah. our creators and are like oh boy and then they see this and they're like in a tee off because they're really mad because they killed you know unprecedented in in some ways to just take projects that are mostly done and they spent a lot of money and just say we're not even it's never going to even see the light of day it's like that's kind of breathtaking um although i noticed I note that that release that went out also said, we really appreciate working with the writers and directors and actors, and we will work with them again. And I thought there was a negotiated payout because those people are not those product projects aren't going to come out. So they paid them off mm-hmm. and, 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 and said nice things about them. And you can see what, what was going on there. And the people actually working on those projects didn't say anything because they got uh, they got paid off to just let it go. <laughs> um, so. Do are they does does it work together? I think they can. I honestly do. I think um, I keep coming back to thinking about how Disney um, integrated, you know, all the Fox brands and their own brands and built Disney Plus. And one of the things that they did that I thought was really clever is is integrate National Geographic, which came over from Fox, and that they said, look, Disney Plus isn't just Star Wars and Marvel and Disney movies, although it is those things. It is also National Geographic, which is you know. 
reality documentary content. Um, they're going to have to figure out in the U.S. at least, you know, integrating Hulu at some point and maybe ESPN. But I think it can fit. And in fact, I, I, I made a joke um, in a Slack, so nobody else saw it, like 10 people saw it. But I made a joke that David Zaslav is the kind of guy who opens Disney Plus and goes, man, look at that National Geographic tile. Like, that's his thing is like stuff like that. But I think I think it can fit. I think that you can build a big enough uh, umbrella for all this stuff to come underneath it, whatever they ca- end up calling it. And there's lots of rumors out there. Is it going to be HBO Discovery? Is it going to be... I, I, I'm going to put my money down for for um, something like WB Plus or Warner Plus or Warner Brothers Plus or something like that with the Warner name instead of Discovery or HBO. But I don't know. So yeah, I think, I think it's okay. I think the goal here is not bad in terms of the kind of you know uh, nutritious breakfast um of mixing it up with the the high gloss hbo content and the uh very friendly and cheap to make uh, reality stuff from discovery i feel like there's a way to mix all that stuff together because i think you know there are people whose diet contains only one of those things but i think that there there are places where that they they can flow together and i think there's also just reality right which is you cannot build an entire streaming service at hbo rates like you you can't you i mean can't they, do... they tried to just do that with hbo and it did not go well yeah and hbo you, now you... is not unsuccessful but it was in no means successful you got to stay within yourself and there will always be, I think, an output, an increased output for HBO. Like we saw when HBO stepped up its game and did things like like hacks and stuff like that, that was of the quality of HBO, but just didn't premiere on HBO. Like that stuff was good and it won Emmys and like, OK, and, there's and a level. Yeah. And I think that's what people are forgetting. It's like it's not that those are going to go away. Casey, right. I'm sure Casey Bloys, who came up via comedy and then went into overseeing a lot of HBO stuff and then eventually took over HBO Max as a whole and HBO as a whole. You know, but he came up via the comedy channel. I'm sure he loved Hacks. I'm sure, like, I'm sure he that was a big reason that he brought on Hacks on. It's not, it's not like he's going to cancel Hacks. I saw a friend on Twitter. It was funny to me tweet um, when all the rumors were first happening, and he just went, um, uh, "What does this mean for Succession?" I was like, "It was nominated for 25 Emmys. Like, it's not uh. that show is not going anywhere." But what what he, what Zaslav was saying <laughs> is, why would we spend money on cooking shows when we have a Food Network? And I think that makes a lot of sense. You know. Where I yeah. come down on on what they have to do, and, and well, it's a very difficult sandbox to play in, right? They're kind of caught in the middle of, of an ocean because they have to cut spending. So you do that in parts on with labor. We take down redundancies. You know, HBO Max's unscripted department, I'm sure, is going to be hit extremely hard. And that's really unfortunate because it's actual jobs. But it's a redundancy for the Discovery, for the WBD executive team because they have all the Discovery channels. Yeah, um, totally. So I think – you know, they, they they have to figure out a way to hit a uh, billion dollars in EBITDA on streaming alone by 2025, I think is what they gave. You know, that's the number that sits on Zaslav and J.B. Perrette, who's the head of streaming, like sits on their desks. You know, they're, they're trying to get to that point. At the same time, streaming only works at, as we know it right now with continued investment and with kind of continued increased investment. There has to be a way to say we're going to continue competing for these titles um, and especially when you it's not just players like Disney or Netflix, it's it's Amazon and Apple who are saying like, well, we don't care. We sold a bunch of iPhones. We have a new iPhone coming out like we're right. going to continue and we want those relationships. We want to be an HBO. And so we will do it. And so that lab, I think to your point, will give Casey the room to run over there. But I think what he has proven really well is that he can cost he, he can cost uh, um, 
take, he, he can literally cut, cut, cut cost. Wow. We got there. We got there. He yep. can cut cost really well. Can he spend as well? You know, I think mm-hmm. the other thing I really want to bring up with streaming that I, I think a lot of us have forgotten is the main data that we're working off of for a lot of these companies. And that therefore the main data, a lot of these other companies are working off of has come over the last three years. It's not a lot of time. It's also heavily skewed data. It is skewed because of an unprecedented moment in history that caused people to say, how much of this is irrevocable consumer behavior? How much of them are not going to go back to theaters at all? How many of them are going to cut cable for 100%? They're not going to go back, but they're going to go to streaming. So all these initiatives are taken based on this data. So based on one forecasting trends, cable continues to go down, broadband continues, uh, broadband um, activations continue to go up. That makes sense. I'm not here sitting. I'm not sitting here on a streaming podcast saying streaming is going to go away. It is very obviously the future. But the level of profitability that was going to happen at the speed that they executives wanted to happen and what they told the street is heavily skewed by a fundamental misunderstanding of, of human behavior. I mean, this is what happened with Peloton and Zoom and Zoom, like on all these different um, memes, uh, not meme stocks, but um, COVID stocks, the COVID companies that saw huge um, stock increases and then come down as people returned kind of to normal life. And so I think with Warner Brothers Discovery, them and Paramount are in this position where they have one foot in linear and they know linear is dying. That's why they're pivoting to, to, to streaming, right? Think of streaming for them as a net the net is designed to catch its uh, its subscribe its its linear customers as they jump ship. It catches them, brings them ideally to their streaming service. They can uh, you know continue moving it. The issue with that plan on the street. This isn't the issue with for subscribers. This is great. You move from cable and you're going to go here and you can watch the same shows. The issue for a company who's used to twenty percent margins on their profit from a cable business because cable is extremely was or I should say was extremely lucrative at the top and bottom line is that you're not going to get those margins on streaming anytime soon. And there's a good chance you might not get to those margins at all. So is streaming as good of a business as cable? No. Is cable going to be around for 20 more years? Probably, you know, let's say 30 more years, probably not. So therefore, streaming your future? Yes. Okay, well, then how do you make up that profit How to the street? Again, consumers don't care about this. They want content right. where it's going to go. Um, and what I will say, lastly, is that as we're dealing with all this skew data, you've got companies, again, like Paramount and WBD, who are saying we're, we have one foot in linear. Linear is still really important to us. We want to be at theatrical. If you're Paramount, you have five of the number one movies of 2022 alone. Like you, you want to be in theaters. Warner Brothers makes extremely good movies that Zaslav wants to bring to theaters. You release your 13 to 18 films per year. You put them in. Those need to generate, you know, five, six hundred, seven hundred million dollars or whatever you might have it. And then you've got the foot in streaming. So you're not Disney and Netflix and Apple and Amazon who are all in on streaming, who are saying, like, this is where our business is going. We're going to sacrifice. Uh, well, if you're Disney, we're going to sacrifice a lot of short term revenue in order to really build up for the long term. Um, and then you've kind of got what I would argue is more of a peacock, which is like they don't really know what they're kind of doing with, st- with streaming in terms of like um, their strategy. Like they're figuring it out. But the, but really, their big business is cable and, and linear still and theatrical. And so they're kind of super hi- hyper focused there. And I think that makes it really difficult to both plan for the future in the way that a futurist like Jason Kalar did, where he had a very specific vision of what he was going to do. And so that really, that's not great for the creative community who's trying to figure things out. It's not great for your financial teams, your strategy teams who are trying to figure out like where we should put, where we should do this. And so I think Zaslav is kind of treading water in the middle of an ocean, him and his team, where they're trying to say like, we think that the best route is to give consumers the best choice across all distribution paths. That's absolutely true. 
absolutely true. Netflix should have had a free advertisement supported uh, um, a channel at this point on Roku with some of their shows that were not being watched heavily on Netflix, but were good and they could put on a fast channel. And then all of a sudden you can build in a new audience and possibly bring them over, perchance bring them over to Netflix, you know, or even if not, just have that deal going, make some additional revenue that way. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. I think put, put things in theaters, have games, you know, meet audiences where they are. But, but the idea that a lot of the stuff may go to linear or that they might sell content to, to, to linear channels. They might sell content to Apple TV plus, you know, they sold Abbott elementary to ABC. They sold Apple uh, Ted Lasso to Apple TV plus it's, it, it's necessary for what they're, for the revenue that they need, but determining the value of that and determining how the, the value per title and then determining how to use that to your advantage, to grow HBO max, to be there for when the inevitable shift from broadcast and cable to streaming happens and be, and be advanced be a service that people already have and they're going to continue paying for, or be one that they automatically know they need to go to and not just fighting. That's that's where I don't know what will happen with WBD. But I don't necessarily bet against Zaslav on the business front. He's 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 done a great job. He's got a, a great story to history. I just hope that, you know, I, I he's a realist and I think he needs a little bit of a futurist. You know, he's got Casey, who's his heart, the heart of that company, the heart of the programming. He has that. He's the the head he has a great head on his shoulders. He's got a great mind for numbers. He has a great, he's a great strategic thinker and that will get him through the next year, the next two. But then you need a futurist. I think in my opinion, yeah. you do need a Kalar. You you need someone who's going to say like, okay, but what, where is this headed? How do we continue making the best programming and experimenting and taking chances and doing cool things, but also planning for the next decade? Yeah. And he's got like Alan Horn from Disney Consulting, but again, doesn't really speak. I mean, speaks like somebody who's been there and seen how it works to kind of help him put it together, but also not necessarily a a visionary. And I do wonder, like, okay, I I feel like uh, we and I especially have tried to be like, okay, Zaslav is not a cartoon villain here. Understand what he's doing. He's got a lot of reasons. He's also kind of the reason that they're in this mess, but it's it's all part of his strategy. And he's speaking to Wall Street when he does that meeting with all those ridiculous slides. And we we get that. However, however, I have to say, as you pointed out, just because he's got this goal of getting, you know, the EBITDA to a certain point and getting the company through the, the next few years, there is this tendency among a lot of business people to focus on the short term because, again, his compensation is tied to the stock and not focus on the long term. And what you end up with is the it's almost like a dead cat bounce, right, where it's just like you, you end up with three or four good years and then you have no future. And then that's the end. And I, I know there are lots of rumors out there about like the end game to this where a lot of people are saying, you know, in the end he's probably going to have to do something like merge it with NBC universal. Uh, by the way, I, I thought that was somebody did the math put, if you put Warner brothers discovery and NBC universal together, it's still smaller than Disney. <laughs> so there is, we think of those as giant companies, but the giants are like super giants now. Um, so, so there's, there's this question of like, I get the reform, but reform only gets you, as you said, only gets you so far. At some point, you've got to have a vision for the future and cutting costs is not a vision for the future. I've worked in places, boy, I'm I'm getting all my issues of my last corporate job up here, but (laughs) I've worked in places where the new head of the business came in and, and, and described their vision and their vision was to cut costs. And it's like, that's not a vision. 
That's not a vision. That's 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 uh, you can cut some costs, but where do we go from there? And the and the answer is, I don't have that vision. I don't have that idea. I'm just going to cut some costs and get my bonus, and then presumably leave, <laughs> and and that'll be the end for me. And the next guy will come in, and you know, and 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 that's totally what happened in my in my past. Um, but I wanted to say all this all this about understanding Zaslav. In addition to worrying about his vision of the future, I have to say, I think some of the 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 way that he may be portrayed as being on a little bit of an ego trip, it might be accurate. Like, I, I want to put that out there, too, that some of this behavior I understand, mm-hmm. but but some of it I look at and think... I think there maybe is some spite involved or it's his pride about how he ran things at discovery. And even though this is a different business, like he's going to come in and anything that Jason Kalar put up, he's going to, he's going to knock down and stuff that he's, you know, the, the, and what crystallized it for me was that slide with the brands because it looks, and again, he presumably approved it, but somebody who came from discovery presumably or somebody who worked at Warner and really wanted to suck up to the boss made this slide that says things like we have the great franchises like Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman and Shark Week and the 90 day fiance universe and Harry Potter and Game of Thrones where it's like I'm sorry one of these things is not like the other or the iconic series like Friends, The Big Bang Theory, Sex in the City, Fixer Upper Welcome Home property brothers and diners drive-ins and dives i love guy fieri but is is that comparable to the big bang theory uh, right it feels and i just get that sense from that slide and from some of these other moves like ah some of this feels maybe like it's more of an ego trip of like i'm in charge here we did things my way at discovery you guys need to learn from me we're we're great we're great we're important culturally with our reality programming and i think there's a little bit of a uh, you know, the culture doesn't a lot of culture and a lot of creators don't really value discovery content as much as they value the Warner Brothers content. And then I think that maybe there's a little bit of a reaction to that. Am I wrong? I well, So I think it's really easy to downplay a lot of what the discovery franchises are. I mean, they are like Joanne and Chip Gaines have an entire empire like they have built an entire empire that has a very large audience. Um, and I think because when we compare it to just the size and I think the 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 cultural zeitgeistiness of a Batman, of a Harry Potter, of a um, what else? Do they own Sherlock, like of a Sherlock, like whatever it might be. It does seem small, but I think that's also the point to an extent. Is that when you are looking at the discovery thing and you're saying, well, you know, I'm just going to take it, take a four person household, I'll take my household because I, I can use an anecdotal household if I'm with my, if I was back home with my parents. My mom would not sign up for anything for Harry Potter or Batman. She just wouldn't. Like, it's not her thing. My my dad might. My brother definitely would. Um, but my mom absolutely would sign up for something if there was the House Hunters universe mm, or whatever. I feel like for her, that is the big draw. And I think, I you know, for at least 24 million people, I think that's their, that Discovery Plus subscriber count. Or no, that's Discovery All Things. Let's say hypothetically, the vast majority of the Discovery um, streaming subscribers are Discovery Plus. Like, let's say 18 to 19 million. 18 to 19 million people in the United States are signing up for, or I think it's global. I can't remember. But it is. 18 to 19 million subscribers are paying for access to this content kind of nonstop. So if you right. throw that in to the HBO Max, yeah, I'm not saying that HBO Max is going to acquire 100 million more subscribers because they have House Hunters. 
But if they have 30 million people who are willing to kind of migrate over because they want to watch those shows, and also you have someone like myself who will sign up for HBO Max to watch a DC movie, but absolutely will watch House Hunters or, or uh, Dive... Uh, Diners, uh, drive-ins, and dives. Yeah, Marine County's own Guy Fieri. I exactly. Gotta, I, I got to give him credit. No, I think I think this is fair. Uh, it, it is it is also useful to view that slide through the lens of the slide that we mentioned earlier, which is the idea here is that there are, in one way, what Zaslav is trying to do is say we have complementary pieces. These appeal to different audiences, and there is absolutely a thing, and I'm part of this too, for people to look at HBO and be like, oh, HBO and DC Comics and Harry Potter, these are very exalted franchises and look at like oh but that's just crap that's on cable but the fact is it's a very popular stuff that's on cable it has value it appeals to a different audience and that when you mix them all together the idea here is that you get something that's a stronger product i will also admit that i have not watched a a cable reality ish show like that in years and so it doesn't appeal to me at all i guess my other my my criticism would be i know why he he's doing it but there's like these franchises that have been around for a long time and other than shark week i would say the discovery stuff is more like these are our hits right now and 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 maybe some of them are franchises that will last 20 30 years but on another level, maybe it doesn't really matter, right? Because you're not, you can compare, they're apples and oranges. It doesn't matter. In the end, what he's really saying is Discovery makes hits that people love and we've got them. And now they're part of our larger thing with the Warner content. Well, and, and I think and that's too, fair enough. Yeah. And I think too, if you just think about how, again, if we try to just think of that potential consumer behavior, People who are going to watch a bunch of DC or, or uh, I was going to say Marvel, a bunch of DC stuff, a bunch of like Harry Potter stuff, whatever it might be, you know, those types of heavy genres. Uh, shocking to anyone who was mad about that slide. That's also right. And that they do skew genre heavy and it does skew male still. Like, that's yeah. not, I don't know why people, I get why people are upset. It's just one of those things where I'm like, don't be upset with advertising well, slides because that's what yeah, and it depends on, and you're Nobody's a skew, right? Everybody's a person. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's every, all, people are like, well, what do you mean? Sex in the city and, and, uh, and, uh, hacks and mayor of Easttown and all, all these things with women as the leads. It's like, well, yeah, that's all true. But also all DC comics. <laughs> but yeah, so so I think if we look at those subscribers, they are going to be tech oriented a little bit more. They are going to be a little bit younger. So they're naturally going to be people who sign up for streaming services, who who seek it out, who are like, I'm going to go and see this. I'm going to cut the cord. If we look at the discovery side, a little bit older, not necessarily if I had a bet, I, I could be wrong, but not as tech focused as a whole. If we if we skew right, if we give not the individual, but as a skew, not as tech focused. So they do pay for cable. They're a little bit older. They're going to pay for cable. Eventually, some of them might leave cable. And so they're going to go, well, I want to continue watching my favorite cable shows. Where am I going to go? HBO Max. Guess what? Like, I'm they're going to on sign HBO up Max. for this platform now because I'm going to go here. So they're saying, we're going to bring in this audience that is still lucrative to us on the cable front in global markets. But as they start to come, either get rid of cable or whatever it might be. They're going to come into the fold. It introduces uh, new audiences to discovery programming. Eventually, we build this thing. That's the bet. You know, whether or not it pays off, I don't know. But but the last thing I wanted to say, because you mentioned it, there's all these rumors about whether NBC and WBD would, I guess, merge. One would acquire one. I assume Brian Roberts at NBC and me would love and Comcast would love to buy Warner Brothers Discovery. Right. The only thing I'll say about that is that sometimes to scale for scale's sake, does not make a, a difference. It, it's kind of this idea of 
you know, do they need to be that level, uh, that size to compete with a Disney or a Netflix or an Amazon Apple? You know, maybe, maybe, maybe that that's that's how it goes. But I think if we're just relying on the kind of numbers alone, you know, HBO Max technically has a bigger, I think, domestic base than Disney Plus, at least as of last earnings. Like, like it's they're slightly bigger domestically, and so I get concerned about the level of adding that additional level of debt when they're still trying to figure right. out how to get through like this level of debt and without, you know, and, and, the, and the biggest question I have with any type of merger that is just scale based and people are very smart. I'm not trying to be like, if this were to happen, that smart, incredibly smart people haven't thought about this. But my question would be, what is the strategy here beyond getting rid of Peacock running a Peacock Discovery Max Plus, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> like beyond running that and having an insanely strong theatrical presence and then having the parks and having this this flywheel, what is the strategy to actually compete 10 years from now? You know, how do you continue to build something that people really love? People, you know, to build adoration to to, to whatever it right. might be. I think, again, we're at the, I see this with, with WBD right now where you have Zaslav, who is exceptionally good at managing companies, who at building companies, I would argue, who is exceptionally good at producing great returns for shareholders and investors. But you also have to spend a little and you have to take those chances and you have to have the gut to be the feeling to be like, I, this is, I think this will work even if all the data says it, it won't. Um, and I worry that without a futurist type around and maybe there is one and we just maybe it's jb like maybe it's jb pratt and, and like and I, and i'm just unaware of it but you get into a point where you're straddling a line and you don't really know how to move and if you're going to do that no matter what your scale whether you're one company or your combined company if you're not willing to kind of take that short the, take those continued short-term hits to really bet on this long-term growth in the long run like what we're betting on is an irrevocable change in consumer behavior at a point that absolutely uh, uh, revolutionizes the way we consume content beyond what even we're doing now. That gets really difficult because you'll have an Amazon and an Apple who are saying, "Well, we can continue taking that bet, and we're just going to continue doing it because it doesn't really matter." And you have a Netflix who is run by futurists who's saying, "We're going to do this," and we'll we'll see. It might be that the realists win out. The realists are the ones who are sure. like, "Actually, we figured out that uh, humans aren't going to change as much as we think they're going to change, and we have a, a strategy, and it works, and we're going great." Or Netflix rebounds. Netflix finds its its moment again, and and really, you know, adds another two hundred million subscribers in the next ten years or fifteen years, and then it's a whole other conversation. But I think it's not just being like, well, this one strategy will work and the other one won't, or this one strategy will work and the other one won't. I think it's a combination somewhere in between, but I don't know what that is. Yeah, I think there's a real question about um, looking at the future and saying. I the metaphor that I, I think of sometimes is like you're going up a hill and you know that you're going to crest the top of the hill and come down the other side. And it's like, when do you let your foot off the gas? I feel like the, there, there's a rush to this new market. And obviously the thought has been up to now, you just have to spend a lot of money and go into debt because you're trying to get the land rush. You're just trying to get there. But at some point that strategy doesn't make sense in the long term. So you have to take your foot off the gas at some point. But if you take it off too soon, 
you're going to realize that you're not going to get to the other side because it is i'm going to mix my metaphors here i've said i said for years now that this whole thing is a little bit like a game of musical chairs like you want to be in one of the chairs when the music stops because in the end there won't be 20 streaming services and you want to be one of the ones you spend all that money and go into all that debt because you want to be one of the ones that are the giants at the end of the game and right now, everybody's like, yeah, but the, can we stop now? The debt, it, it, we spend so much money. And so, you know, what? and I know there's more to it than that, but I think that on one level, it comes down to what's your strategy and how do you spend the money and can you get to the other side? And and nobody knows whether the Netflix way of doing it is still the way you need to do it or whether it, it's okay now for uh, Zaslav to come in and say, no, 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 no. No, now is the time when we get our our books in order because we're going in for the long haul. And I, I don't I honestly don't know. That's one of the fascinating things about this whole category is nobody really knows the right answer here. But right. it does feel like everybody knows there's going to be a settling <laughs> and they just want to be they want to be alive when that happens. And that, I think that colors every move that everybody makes in streaming. <laughs> I mean, I think. Regardless of what happens, we're about to see a bunch of different, very different, you know, it, it was funny for a while, everyone chased the Netflix thing, right? Everybody was kind of like, spend, 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 put a bunch of stuff on it, people will come, and then we'll just all grow like Netflix. And then what happened was the waves that came all the way out in the middle of COVID started going back into the ocean and Netflix was hit and everyone else was hit and people are kind of trying to determine what happens next and what humans will do. And trying to predict what humans will do never really goes well. But um, I do think for the first time, we're going to see different strategies play out at some of the biggest conglomerates in the entertainment space. And for me, as someone who spends a lot of time thinking about this, spends a lot of time talking to people, um, making those decisions, it's very fascinating because we'll actually see if one works up on the other. And and we're, and then it, it doesn't have to be that one strategy rules all, right? It could be right. that for a company, you know, a company like Netflix is never going to have to worry about its studio unit or its parks business and the way mm -hmm. that Disney and Comcast are going to have to worry about or, its studio. Or its legacy broadcast network. Or its legacy and broadcast TV stations. Network. <laughs> exactly. And there's just aspects that Netflix won't have to deal with. So that gives Netflix the, you know, I was talking to Alex Kranz, who's a managing editor at The Verge, incredibly smart human. Um, and we were talking about kind of just streaming in general. And, and, and um, they were saying, you know, the idea of which what, what they missed was the experimentation that came from early streaming that seems to have gone away. And my 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 counter was, well, the experimentation that happened was with Netflix when Netflix had the mon the, the monopolization of an entire industry based on or backed by rather content from its now competition that people were really into. And so they could experiment because they were the only ones in it. They were the only ones making money. So you could have that time to say, well, we're going to experiment with weird things and we're just going to do it because we're still getting paid uh, uh, very, very handsomely. We're still growing exponentially fast. Like we we're, we're really good. Then you see competition come in. You see the belts start to tighten, especially at companies like Netflix and WBD. You see all these moments happen where, you know, there's a fair market, which is great. Like we should celebrate fair markets and competition increases. And so now it's not just, okay, well, let's experiment and see what happens, you know, for 10 years. It is, yes, if you're, I think if you're smart, let's continue to experiment. Let's not de degrade quality of programming to push through data or algorithmically, or I should say solely data or alg algorithmically based decisions. 
you know, the programming is still what pe- brings people in. And then, and then, um, and then the audience is king. They'll, they'll choose. They, they'll go where they want to go, where they think the value of that content really is. But I do think you have to continue experimenting a little and you that, but you also have to rein it in. And so in that way, you know, Zaslav's strategy and his team is not necessarily apocalyptic to me. It reads like a realist. It reads like someone who right. hyper is who's hyper aware that if they want to continue experimenting and investing in content, they need they to, they need to not have their stock downgraded. They need to not lose shareholder confidence and investor confidence. So they have to be able to prove that hey, we're going to try to make up this two billion dollar miss in guided EBITDA projections. Because we know that if we don't, we won't have the money coming in to then take the experiment. And I think, to me, maybe this is crazy, that doesn't sound illogical. Like, that sounds like someone who's in a tough position, who inherited a lot right. of debt, who knows they need to pay off that debt in order then to take that bet. And I think what you said, Jason, is 100% right. The smartest thing that he can do is let Casey be Casey and just let him do him. Yeah, this is what I wanted to get at is is – the problem with the narrative for the last week has been it's about been about cutting costs and it's been about the business. And what they need to do is communicate to, I mean, ultimately to consumers, but also to the, the creative people. And maybe that's not Zaslav, maybe that's Casey Boys, but also it's what's going on at DC, right? They killed this movie. Um, there was a great uh, line about how Zaslav is talking about, we're going to have a 10-year plan like Marvel and Alan Horn and I are working on it. But like Walter Hamada at DC had a 10-year plan and it included the bad girl movie that they just killed. And it's like, so is he out? And like, and, and, and people... Like, that's the other part of the story is like cut costs, make good business decisions like we you and I can talk about and be like, I understand why they're doing that. But if you're somebody working who who theoretically is going to be working with WBD on something like this, you need the other side of it. You need like, where are we investing? What is important to us? What projects are we working on? Why are we still making things Mm -hmm. and 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 working with talent? And I think the mistake of last week is perhaps because they didn't anticipate it or perhaps they just didn't get around to it. The mistake of last week from the WBD perspective is it became kind of all about the money yeah. and the cuts and not about the content and the art and the work. And I know like, you're like, yeah, but it is about the money. But on another level, you're in a creative business. It's show business. It's both of those words together. And the talent is really unhappy with WBD right now. And I feel like they, they need their, they need their ego boost. They need their strokes. And everybody kind of wants, like, I find it funny that people are talking about Westworld, uh, which, by the way, the latest season of Westworld is the best. I think it's the best <laughs> season of Westworld. It I is hear this. Fantastic. Yeah. But people, it's coming up to its finale. And I keep hear, hearing people think, are they going to cancel it? Because everything at Warner Brothers is on fire now. And I'm like, wow, like that is not a great place to be where everybody just assumes that everything they love that comes from DC and HBO is just going to die because of David Zaslav. So there's another narrative that needs to happen here. And I don't know if it comes from Zaz, if it comes from Casey Bloys, how they do it. But like, I know they're working on their plans, but like, that's what 
to me has been missing for the last week is the other side of it, which is we're still in business making great stuff that you're going to love. We're just changing. You guys don't need to worry about our, inter- you know, our accounting department and, and our tax write downs. All you need to know is that we are also still committed to all this other stuff. And they've made some statements about it, but like, that's not what has come through. And I think that's going to be their challenge, especially to the, the talent and the people in the industry is, you know, what, what, is your plan going forward mm-hmm. show us that you value us because if all you value is EBITDA we are going to have a problem yeah well said <laughs> so uh we'll see uh, I want to do let's do a letter or two before we go we're almost at the end now every time you say let's do a letter it makes me think of blues clothes <laughs> sure I just if if we owned the right, the the licensing rights to like we just got a letter. I would just play it every time. I've also heard from people who say that they think it's the old. Uh, we're opening the old CBS mailbag. It's oh, a Paul yeah. Schaefer thing too. Um, yeah. Well, okay. This is from George. It says to the director of strategy and the newly appointed master of ceremonies. Thank you, George. <laughs> I was thinking about when I first signed up for Netflix ages ago, I was picking genres from long lists and answering questions to the tune of this or that all to get my profile set up. Nowadays, I have to jump on my laptop and intensely dig around to find those preferences or spend ages teaching the algorithm with watch lists and favorites. Why don't streamers have better ways for customers to set their preferences or recalibrate preferences as tastes change? Is it because they think their algorithms are good enough? Is Is it because they're going to push whatever they're going to push? I'd imagine that if I can make the algorithms work better for me, I would more likely keep watching. What do you think about this? Is Right in the early days, there was a lot of calibration. And now it's sort of like, no, no, no. We'll just show you stuff. Um, And I know there are algorithms back there, but I feel this too. Like sometimes I feel this. It was just like, hey, Netflix, can I just tell you what kind of shows I like? Because this is not it. Yeah, you know what's wild? I was in uh, Canada last week. I was in Toronto visiting my my folks. And so I was using Netflix because the streaming landscape in Canada is just not great. Um, mm-hmm. the, uh, an insane amount of like product features being tested. And I was tweeting about it because I didn't see them in the US at all. And a bunch of people, um, once somebody who lived um, somewhere in, uh, in Africa, I can't remember exactly where, somebody who lived in, in the UK and someone who lived in France were all like, oh, yeah, or Germany. It was like, yeah, we've been seeing this too. And so I was like, oh, they must be doing rollouts in non-U.S. territories or, or potentially they're doing them in the U.S. in a very small limited batch. But it's it's driving me insane. And it gets to this point because what they've done is like storified Netflix. So they, you open it up and there's like it like little 10 second, like, like an Instagram story, like the 10 second thing that plays. You can click through to look. It does that on the homepage and it recommends like here's some things you might be interested in. And then on the right, there's another one where on the right side of the screen, there's like your potential 10 and it's like 10 title blocks and you can go through them and none of the recommendations are great and to george's exact point it's way harder to train the algorithm like we have gotten so used to and I, by we i mean people who tend to be a little bit more tech savvy who are aware of how this works have gotten much more better at being like okay we're going to train our, our the algorithm to show us what we want and so we're going to spend time and do this because to george's exact point for some reason they took away here's what you're interested you know tell us what you're interested in and we'll find stuff and now Netflix is kind of, again, like I was saying earlier in the show, reliant on pushing out stuff that may feel similar to what you might have watched that was licensed and they no longer have. You know, if they lose Criminal Minds, like what do they have that kind of like Criminal Minds? You get like a Mindhunter mm-hmm. recommendation or whatever it might be. Um, and it just makes the whole experience almost worse. Like I won't say that it's 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 absolutely terrible. And I'm glad that they're experimenting because I think Netflix needs to continue experimenting with its product features. But I do wish to, I think your point, George. That it was just simplified again. It was like 
you know, and they use the like button and then they have the super like button that's like two thumbs up or whatever and, you, and the super dislike or whatever it is to show you're interested in something. But it's not the same as like, hey, do you like this exact? We're going to give you 15 different types of shows. Which ones do you like? I feel like one of the services still does it. Maybe it's Peacock or Paramount Plus. One of them, you open it up with the first time you sign up and it's very much like, hey, here's 20 shows. Tell us which one you like and which one you don't right. like. And then Peacock, recommend stuff. maybe. But, yeah, I think, I think it might be Peacock. Yeah. And it's actually great. It's like, yes, this is exactly the type of show I'm into. It's exactly what I'm not into. And I do find that the recommendations get better there. The only thing I can I can think of that will fix any of these issues, and I'm ranting, I don't know if you can tell because I've been thinking about this for seven <laughs> days. But like the only issue that, that is going to fix this is something like an Apple TV or a, a Google TV with Chromecast uh, or um, a Roku where we open up the gardens where they can then see what you're watching across all these different services. And then all the different services have a better idea of what to recommend you. And until then they're going to try to find ways to think that maybe they know what you're interested in. It's going to be heavily based on originals and, and, or Mm -hmm. if you're on HBO max or whatever license programming they have, Netflix will still do license programming. And it's just, I feel like going to get worse. That's my opinion. That's just my thought. Apple knows what I watch except Netflix, right? Because I use the TV app and so it basically knows what I watch. And so it could theoretically do a better job than it does, but at least it knows something about it. And I think that's the challenge. And that's where as as proud as Netflix is of its algorithm, right? To George's point. Um, I think that's true. I think that there's a lot of tendency to be like, oh, no, we've got it wired now. We're like TikTok. We we know everything you like. But the truth is, they don't. They only know what I like on Netflix. They don't know what's outside the garden. And that's the problem is if I can't tell them, then they have to infer from my Netflix behavior yep. what my overall behavior is. And, you know, I'm they don't know that I'm watching only murders in the building. They don't know that I'm watching Westworld, right? They only know that I'm watching Sandman. And like they think, oh, wow, this guy really likes Sandman and the Great British Bake Off. <laughs> it's like, well, I do. But those are only the shows on Netflix that I'm watching. There are lots of other shows I'm also watching. And and it falls down there. So their their pride of their algorithm, their algorithm's not getting enough data input. And so I would love to be able to say, um, I don't know what, what the the legal issues are around here, but I love for them to to let me train it and say, here are some other shows I like that are not on Netflix. And then say, here, Netflix, I'm helping you out. I want to watch more on Netflix. You need to help me here. But until something like that happens, or as you point out, there's a an opening of the gardens where everybody sort of knows what everybody else is watching, which I think would be beneficial, but I know that everybody is terrified of it. We are in this situation where the algorithms aren't that good because we're not just... Like, we're not just watching things on Netflix yeah, or and, any service. And here, here's what I'll say. Like, the, to the counterpoint, um, I think Rich Greenfield, uh, who's a, an analyst, um, and, and also, I think he was an investor, brought this up on Twitter. You know, in, uh, watch time has increased at Netflix. Watch time has increased across all streaming services. Um, so, yeah, on the one hand, if this wasn't working, they simply would not do it. Like, clearly, the algorithm re- recommendations are working uh, for a vast majority of its subscribers. I mean, Netflix's churn has also never been higher with new customers who come in and are just not happy with stuff. So they're leaving. So that's part of the issue. But I, I, here's here's what I'll point to when, when the idea of like algorithmic recommendations not working um, doesn't make sense, because if we look at Spotify, right, Spotify Discover is maybe the greatest algorithmic recommendation in the world and, and TikTok, right? It is this idea of like you've we've gotten we know but i want to use spotify because what spotify does is it takes music from every single label takes podcasts from every single uploader and takes like indie artists who want to upload their own stuff within that it then has access to all this data and then says here we can just show you artists that we think you'd be into across all these different things so to jason's point 
if you remove the amount of data, and for Netflix, that includes licensed programming being taken off. If you remove the data on what people are interested in, you have to start making wider leap guesses. And sometimes maybe it works. I mean, listen, if I'm watching Criminal Minds and they want to recommend Mindhunter, I mean, bought on, bingo, good job. But if they don't know I'm interested in Criminal Minds because I'm watching on Paramount Plus now, do they know to recommend Mindhunter to me if on Netflix, the only thing I'm really watching because I'm a parent with a four-year-old is uh, Sea Beast or whatever it might be? They don't know that. And that's the issue. But I digress. Clearly, Jason and I have many thoughts on this. Yeah. Uh, one more letter. This is from uh, CJ. The announcement of Netflix trialing add-on fees for extra households sharing a family account got me thinking about something. Do you think Netflix considered, at least up to this point, the sharing of an account to be a form of lock-in? I found less and less reason to open Netflix between new seasons of The Crown and Somebody Feeds Phil, but I keep my account as it is used by multiple family members. If we weren't sharing, I don't think I would keep my account active all the time, and I don't think my other family members would either love to your mother's CJ in Sydney. And I will just say, I have had that moment. I had it recently of, am I going to cancel Netflix? And the number one reason I didn't is because my daughter watches so much on Netflix and she's a college student who technically Netflix wants to have a separate account. And this is the I think this is a great point by CJ. Like one of the ways you get lock in is that you've got other people depending on you. So you keep the service and I wouldn't have Netflix right now were it not for for the fact that my daughter is watching it. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. I think it absolutely. I mean, I think that's why for a long time they didn't touch it right for a long time. They were hype. They were, they were aware of this. They know that it is. It's a reason, you know, four or five people watch on one service and that's why when they report their um, subscriber numbers, I think it's currently 3.5 viewers per subscriber in the United States. I think it might, it might be the same globally too. You know, they they know this like, and they're hyper aware that if they cancel, they risk alienating five potential subscribers, right? Or whatever it might be. That was also though when Netflix was – stock was going for $590 and, and, and they could say, oh, we'll take the hit because people are watching. That's what we really care about because we want to create this kind of cultural zeitgeist moment. We want to be an HBO. We want to kind of have this adoration from fans. We want more people to watch it. Now, again, when we kind of bring it back to you know, Jason was saying earlier, when we have earnings calls and, and they're talking to, 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 to investors and, and analysts, you know, with Netflix now, the question isn't just subscriber addition or, or subscriber loss. The, this, the question is revenue and profit and free cash flow. And the question is, you know, EBITDA. And it's all these things that now Netflix has answered for. And if you're Netflix and you know you've got several billion dollars worth of potential customers um, sitting over here and they're just not paying, you're not going to necessarily try to alienate them totally by saying, well, we know exactly who's paying for this and who's not. We're going to just stop you from watching automatically. You're going to try to find a way to leverage their interest and turn it into a cheaper alternative plan to get some of that income in, um, right. ideally. I mean, it, will it work? I think, like, to your, to your point, CJ, like, maybe not. You know, maybe people are like, actually, if you're going to make me not uh, – if you're going to make me pay for this, like, actually, I'm not going to do it. I was watching through this other thing, but I'm not going to do it now. You know, maybe. But on the other hand, you know – if the idea is, okay, I'm going to keep this subscribed for my kid uh, or whatever or for whoever and I'm going to keep this subscription and it's only going to cost me $3 extra to pay for my kid and that way they get to still use it, you know, maybe there's families that do it. They don't know. This is why they're experimenting and Netflix's whole strategy with with things is um, walk, crawl, run, right? Like this yeah. is how they approach things. They, 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 they go out with something, then they sit on it for a while and they watch the data and they analyze the data and then they – kind of have a bunch of meetings about it 
And then once they have an idea, then they run. Then they're like, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to launch this or we're not going to launch it or whatever it might be. And so we don't know what the experiment says yet, but we do know that Netflix is no longer at a point where they can say, well, we can have billions of dollars worth of lost revenue in free riders um, who are not living in the same household. So we're going we're gonna to have to find a way to do it. A very, very interesting to see whether or not this works. It's just because this is a, an experiment that a lot of other companies are going to be looking at, like a lot right. of them. I think CJ's point too is also that that just if Netflix is making this calculation, they've got to realize they're going to increase their churn potentially yeah. when they do this. Um, and you know, are you trading? Are you trading one account that pays every month forever for mm-hmm. two accounts, but they both churn a lot? Right. And is that more money net? Net. And if it is, maybe you don't care. But there is some advantage. I my gut feeling is that Netflix needs to be more aggressive with the number of simultaneous streams on their plans, and maybe even offer a plan that that officially covers uh you know uh students out of the home or something like that for a little bit extra and sort of like do it like that because i think that the simultaneous streams is a way to really reduce sharing because it's so inconvenient and and then if you officially sort of like legalize the sharing with uh, certain scenarios you can you can get people to spend a little bit more money in order to be legal but i guess we'll see i'm sure that there's a whiteboard at netflix somewhere that's got all these ideas on it and they're trying them all in chile and brazil and uh you know, and uh, we're sorry but that's where netflix is trying this stuff right now all right uh what will happen in the next two weeks right like there's so much that has happened in the last month since we recorded it's going to keep on happening we do love your letters um if you've got a question for us you can email us at downstream at relay.fm or just send a message preceded by question mark ask downstream in the relay fm members discord you can also tweet at us at downstream pod on twitter of course love to your mothers and you can find director of strategy julia at loudmouth julia on twitter parrotanalytics.com you can find me at jay snell on twitter and at sixcolors.com and we will be back in two weeks until next time julia say goodbye bye guys